Everybody grab one. There should be enough for everyone to have one. You'll want to have one because it has some music that we'll be singing later. Uh, just don't look at it now, though. We'll get to it later. And if I could ask whoever ends up with the extras in the back, if you, when you get them, if you could bring them up to me so I can hand them out to other people if they're missing them. Um, okay, so we're, we're beginning... Oh, great, a black one again. Yeah. David, I'm, I'm not in need of your markers today. Thank you, though. <laughs> uh, so we're at week two of what makes a good hymn good, and um, our purpose here is to, to get you to think critically about the songs you're singing in worship. Um, contrary to popular opinion, this is not an area of complete subjectivity. It's not really even an area of taste, necessarily. You will have your favorite hymns, I will have my favorite hymns, and they might be different, but that being said, there are still elements that objectively make a good hymn good. Uh, there are approaches to writing both words and music that uh, will make those compositions full of truth, goodness, and beauty. And that's what we're after here, to see what those elements are, what will make good hymns good. In Psalm 19, it talks about how the law of the Lord is sweeter than honey. This is a great little verse that gives us insight into our our amazing God, our gracious God, who not only does he give us sweet things like honey, but he gives us a desire for them, an appreciation for these sweet things. And part of the effects of sin that are certainly aren't aided by our culture is that we've lost the taste for honey. And not only that, but we've lost our desire for it. And this should not be, certainly not in our worship. Uh, in our worship, we should be striving to bring God our very best and so that's what we're, we're looking for in this class, to see what elements make the very best of our hymnody. As you'll remember, our uh, living, breathing Book of Church Order, Mark Vanderpool, reminded us about uh, the place of psalmody as the first place, and then hymns, which are uh, in accordance with Scripture, the three forms of unity, and approved by the consistory, right? So we're not here to upset that balance. Thank you so much. Uh, but we are just focusing in on hymnody for the next few weeks. And a lot of the stuff we're talking about applies to psalm settings also. Um, but let's go through a brief recap uh, to remind us what we talked about last week and help those who might not have been here. And I'll, those of you who were here last week, I'll ask your help right now. So there are two, two elements that make up every hymn. Start with T's. What are they? Text and? Text and tune. Very good. And we had that uh, trick question, which is more important? Yes. Good answer. Right? We talked about how the text is more important in the sense that... Uh, um, a text is not written to draw out a beautiful melody, but a melody is written to draw out the truths of a text. And remember that quote from Martin Luther who said, in congregational song, we give voice to our beliefs in our theology. And you can't do that by whistling a tune. You can't do that by humming a tune. You need words. So in that sense, the text is more important. Once you have a good text, though, we saw that the tune is equally as important in making a good hymn good because a bad tune will ruin a good text. Um, remember, we use that analogy of the Holy Spirit. The tune is like the Holy Spirit whose job is to draw attention away from himself and onto Christ, who in this analogy would be the text. So if you're leaving church and you're, you're, you have a tune stuck in your head and you're humming the hymn that you sung earlier, you're not really there yet. The idea is to be singing the words, humming the words, or yeah, uh, in your head, singing the words in your head. So text and tune, they go together. Text kind of has first importance. And then we were looking at elements that make, the, um, make these... Uh, uh, good and beautiful. In terms of content, the very first important one was that a text needs to be grounded in what? Scripture. This 
safeguards us from our own inventions. It safeguards us from bad theology, things that are not scripturally sound. The classic example might be in the famous Christmas hymn, Away in a Manger, which has that line about the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. It doesn't, what? <laughs> Where is the scriptural basis for that? You know, if we were to ask the author, he might say, well, I wrote that because I wanted to get across the sense of tranquility and peace, or maybe the sense of Jesus' divinity. But what we know from scripture is that Jesus was fully man, and babies tend to cry a lot. Um, so that, that line doesn't really hold up. That's just a classic example. You can find a lot of these errors in a lot of our f- favorite hymns, unfortunately. Uh, the next thing was that uh, hymns need to be focused on who? They need to be God-focused and Christ-centered. And this prevents us from being me-focused and me-centered. It it safeguards us from being overly experiential. When they're God-focused and when they're Christ-centered, it really doesn't matter if you come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. That really doesn't have anything to do with anything. Um, So yeah, they need to be focused on God, Christ-centered. The third thing was that they need to be theologically, do you remember this one? They need to be mature. And this was the challenge, maybe the greatest challenge of writing a text, is that hymns, they have the job of capturing big, grand ideas, uh, profound doctrines, without being too intellectual for the average congregant, but at the same time not being too trite. So while it's true uh, to sing Jesus loves me, this I know, and that's biblically sound, and that's God-focused, and there is a place for singing simple words. Um, That makes a great kids song, kids hymn, but not so much for adults. Because if we've truly um, grasped this idea of the love that we have uh, in Jesus, the fact that Jesus has loved us, we might sing something a little bit more mature, a little bit more profound. Maybe something like, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, roaring like a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. So that's Uh, an example of theological maturity in our hymnody. In terms of form, we talked about things like uh, length, shouldn't be too long, there's important uh, use of rhyme, but it's not necessarily essential. Needs to be conceptually united, not just a bunch of random verses put together. Um, This idea of progression, where one verse builds on the next, we saw a lot of hymns that do that. that. They kind of tell a story, we'll see that some today also. Also, the use of parallelisms. Remember, we looked through the hymnal and found hymns that, showed parallel, uh, that used parallelisms. Um, uh, in your handout, you'll see in the back at the very bottom, I put two verses from a hymn by Gary Parrott, who is a professor at Gordon-Conwell in uh, worship, and something else, too, I forget. Here's a hymn where it's, it has parallelisms, and it's definitely Christ-centered. It's called Christ We Proclaim. Um, but his, in terms of form, he's, he's lacking some things. I bolded and underlined areas where he put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. That makes it awkward to sing. You can just feel it as you read through that. Also, italicize some other things that make the hymn a little awkward. For instance, he says, Christ is the truth, the life, the way. But everybody knows that phrase as being Christ is the way, truth, and the life. So that's just a little awkward when you hear it. And then it makes you think about the way he wrote it rather than thinking about your praise to God. So that, that's just something you can look at. Other than that, though, it's a, it's a good hymn. In terms of form, there, there's a lot that can be said um, in terms of form that can get across the message of the content. But rather than just list them out here, I'll point them out as we look through several hymns today. I think that'll be more interesting. As far as tune, remember we talked about making it 
accessible to a, a, a wide uh, skill set of singers. As far as the range, it can't be too low. It can't be too high. Everybody was scared to hear sing that one. Um, rhythm shouldn't be too difficult. We talked about scansion. That's where the natural speech patterns and inflections of our language need to be represented by musical inflections, which can be done by uh, elements of pitch, meter, length. The melody needs to be singable. Ways to help melodies be remembered, we talked about using repetition. Remember, we used Come Thou Found as the example. That line repeats three out of the four times in that hymn. Three, line, or three of the four lines is that exact melody. That's actually that's used in a wide range of hymns, and it's called bar form, where you have an A melody, you repeat it again, and then you insert a B melody and go back to the A melody. A-A-B-A. It's called bar form. Also, another form is A-A-B. Um, maybe you've heard, it's not bar like a, a tavern. It's bar like a musical bar. Maybe you've heard this argument against hymnody that it just used to be the songs that people got drunk to in the taverns back in the day, so we shouldn't be singing the, the, this music. That's because they hear that hymns are written in bar form, and they get confused that they think they were drinking songs. So if you ever hear someone say that about hymnody, now you know, no, bar form has to do with repeating uh, the melody. Uh, and then we talked about melodic cycles and sequences. We used the tune Manoah as an example. Where it, it doesn't necessarily repeat the melody, but it takes that same idea and transposes it up a few, uh, uh, few notes on the scale. And then, uh, most importantly, it needs to match the affect of the text. I won't make you sing uh, Sacred Head Now Wounded again to lead on O King Eternal. Jonathan Taylor might storm the lectern if we do that. Uh, but you get the idea. Okay, so now let's, I'm sorry that we just kind of rushed through that. If you, get, if you weren't here last week, you can listen online. But now let's get into what we're doing today. We're going to see this played, uh, played out. We're going to see this in action. Uh, and I, I kind of dropped a hint that we were going to look at one of the most reformed hymns, or most famous reformed hymns, and see how uh, this all comes together and how the composer worked to draw out the ideas of the text. And I'm hoping that kept you up all week wondering, what hymn is it going to be? Um, I had a couple people ask me. I, I didn't tell you. Uh, anybody want to take some guesses? Uh, hymns, uh, the hymn that you think we're going to be looking at. It's in your hymnal, so any favorites? Are you kidding me? Did you get my notes? You got my notes. It's holy, holy, holy. Very good. Okay. Wow. Okay, so that's number 318. Turn to 318, please. And we're going to look at holy, holy, holy. Very good. So this uh, was written by Reginald Heber, who was an Anglican minister. Sorry if you can't see me behind the pole. I'll be here for a little bit. Uh, He was also the Bishop of Calcutta for a time, and he went to Oxford University. And he died at age 43. Uh, He was swimming and suffered a heat stroke, and he drowned, unfortunately. But a year after his death, his wife and close friends published a collection of 57 of his hymns. And Holy, Holy, Holy comes from that publication in 1827. So now let's see how this hymn measures up to the guidelines that we've established. So first of all, is it grounded in scripture? Yes or no? Yes. Any any passages come to mind, verses, ideas? Isaiah 6. Is that what you said? Isaiah 6? Yes. Right, where Isaiah's in the throne room. Holy, holy, holy. Also, a lot of themes from Revelation. Uh, Revelation chapter 4. I think this is actually, he puts us straight into the 
well, a couple of verses. Revelation 4 says, Day and night they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You see that at the end of the second verse. Um, so it's definitely grounded in Scripture. It's certainly God-focused. Um, and it's definitely theologically mature. It's not a trite hymn. It's talking about the grandeur and the holiness of God. In terms of form, what are some things that, that the author uh, employs here? There should be one that jumps out right away. Say it louder. Yeah, parallelisms, right? Every verse, holy, 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 holy. Another thing, though, you might not notice at first is uh, this theme of, well, you would notice that the, the major theme of the hymn is the Trinity, right? That's one of the main ideas of this hymn. Here's something cool that Heber does, though. He employs several poetic um, symbols of three throughout his hymn to drive home the message of the Trinity. So first, of course, is the thrice holy God that we see at the beginning of each verse and two other times also. But how about this? Beyond that, we see in the third line of the first verse, what are the three attributes given to God? Three attributes. He is holy, merciful, mighty, right? So there's a use of three. Um, how about he is, the hymn says that he is perfect in power, love, purity. There's another use of three. Um, he's worshipped by saints, seraphim, and cherubim. And where is he worshipped? He's worshipped in earth, sky, and sea. So there's something clever that the, the author does to drive home this idea of the Trinity. Let's look at the tune, a uh, tune that we all love, written by John B. Dykes, who was a musician and a theologian. If more of our church musicians today were theologians, we might be in a better place. Um, we use many of his hymn tunes still today. And when he set out to put this text to music, he carefully considered the things we've been talking about. Uh, what will make the tune accessible to a congregation and singable to a congregation? And what musical elements could be employed to convey the meaning of the poetry? Uh, the tune name that he uses proves how devoted Dykes was to drawing out the message of the text. Do you see the tune name? It's underneath the title there. Shout it out, someone. Nicaea. What do you think he's referring to there? Any of my church history buffs? Council of Nicaea in the 4th century where the uh, Orthodox view of the Trinity was upheld against Arianism, I think. Is that right? right. Okay. Uh, so there, it just shows the fact that he called this Nicaea is that he is devoted to... Um, uh, making his music display what the text is about, for instance, the Trinity. So let's look at some other elements he employs. First, the time signature is in 4-4. Four, four. I won't get too technical, don't worry. This is a common time signature, but it's fitting for a, the processional-like nature of this hymn. So you feel as if you're processing before uh, the king as you sing it. The key he chose, which is in E, also sometimes written in D, you'll see it in hymnals, is a very royal one and um, majestic. The inflection, he, he inflects the correct syllables, as we talked about. Every time we sing holy, we're emphasizing the first syllable, ho, not the second syllable, li, like we would say it, holy, not holy. So there's, uh, that's well employed there. Let's look at a few cool things about the melody. The opening line uh, consists of steadily ascending pitches with increasing rhythm. It starts with four quarter notes and ends with two half notes. And it begins on E and ends on B. And all of this serves to give attention to, the, uh, our, to our thrice holy God. And it increases the emphasis until we reach the third iteration of the word holy. And this melodic ascension concludes on the note 
immediately after that last holy, where uh, now we're six notes higher than we started. So these ascensions emphasize the importance of each statement of the word holy and build up to the highest note for the one who is holy. Uh, So the climactic high point of the sound conveys the highness and the holiness of the Lord, unifying the content of the text with the spirit of the music, which is the whole idea. Similarly, the highest point in the whole tune uh, comes at the beginning of the fourth line. So that that, um, high note there, E, uh, where we're we're singing about God in verse 1 and 4, also in God in verse 2 with the pronoun who, that's who we're referring to, and uh, the idea of perfection in verse 3. Going up high is, is, is really fitting for, these, um, for what we're singing there. This is what uh, Tim Schafer said. Tim Schafer is the musicologist of the new URC Psalter Hymnal. And he's a professor at Penn State University. This is what he says. A rising interval carries certain natural expressions because of the strength and energy required to produce higher pitches when singing. Also informing the natural expressive qualities of ascending intervals are the upward-based physiological responses that people tend to manifest when experiencing feelings of joy, triumph, strength, etc. Conversely, when experiencing sadness, grief, fatigue, people tend to exhibit physiological responses in which the body moves in an essentially downward motion. So picture you're outside, uh, you're in a waiting room outside an office, and you're watching uh, your coworkers go in to have a performance review with their boss. You can probably tell how the meeting went just by the body language of the people as they walk out of the meeting, right? If someone's hanging their head and they're slouching, they're barely lifting their feet, probably didn't go, go too well. It's the same idea with music. As we sing, if we go, if we go downwards in the melody, that's, that's best for things about you know, deep, dark, depressing things. We're singing about sin. We're singing about death. Conversely, if someone walks out of that meeting with their head held high, their chest puffed out, and they're standing up straight, and they're... Prancing about, then the meeting probably went well. So the same idea when we sing up higher on the scale, they're grander themes, they're happier themes, they're joyful themes. So we see it's particularly appropriate that Dykes uh, has the melody go up highest at God, etc. Uh, so that's something we'll we'll see as we go throughout um, other hymns that we look at. One last really cool thing to point out is once again to these first. The first uh, two measures there, holy, 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 of each hymn. The notes Dykes uses, it's um, one note for each word holy. These notes together make up a major triad chord. And it's, re- it's really cool here. So what he's doing is, he, as he employs three different notes for each iteration of the word holy, it culminates in one united unbroken sound. Do you hear it there? So our harmony is made up of triads. That's three notes put together to make one sound. So what message do you think he was trying to convey in the music? Three distinct notes making up one chord. Did I hear it? One and three, though. The Trinity. Very cool thing that he does that maybe we don't know it at first blush when we look at the hymn. But now that we know it, how about we sing together the first verse of this hymn?
very pretty singing. So there's, there's a classic example of where a composer seriously took his job of writing tune to a text to draw out the ideas that are inside the uh, text itself. Um, now take out your, your handouts. Does anybody not have one? I have the extras up here. Thank you. Who else? Did I see some people back here? Yeah, just take all those. Need one? You good? Okay, so here you'll see we're looking at, uh, we're going to be learning some new hymns. And these are all written by James Montgomery Boyce, who was the, for 30 plus years, the senior pastor and renowned theologian at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Pastors make especially good hymn writers, not just because they know the Bible well, but because they know their people well and what speaks to the heart, right? Um, and historically, pastors have been hymn writers. The most famous hymn writers are usually pastors. Um, and historically, this has been the case because they, they strive to write hymns to drive home the message of their sermons. Um, so back in the day, they used to have a new hymn every week that went with that particular sermon. So for instance, John Newton is a famous pastor hymn writer. Um, and so I looked up some of his hymns. These are lesser known hymns of his, but I bet you could guess what he was preaching on the morning they sung these. These are ones he wrote for his congregation. Um, the lion that on Samson roared. When Peter boasted, soon he fell. Uh, as the serpent raised by Moses. If Solomon for wisdom prayed. So these are examples of where pastors are writing sermons for their congregations and for their uh, sermons. Same, same was true for James Boyce, who loved writing hymns about his sermons, about the theology that he loved. He wrote a hymn for each one of the five solas of the Reformation. We might, if we have time, we'll get to one of them today. Uh, but he first started writing hymns in 1999 at the encouragement of the then music director, Paul Jones. Uh, Boyce didn't think he'd be any good at it, but as soon as he started, he couldn't stop. Uh, he, he said this to uh, Paul Jones. Uh, he says, Paul, I, I'm thinking that if we are going to have a modern reformation, we are going to need new reformation music. Bible doctrines have always gotten a hold of people in this way. And so it became his goal to write a hymn for every month, a new hymn each month, and it seemed like this would be the beginning of a wonderful collaboration that might have lasted for years, but instead it was only uh, a collaboration that lasted one year because after 12 months, Boyce succumbed to his ordeal with cancer and passed away. So there's 12 hymns. They've been combined in this booklet. Hymns for a Modern Reformation you can find online if you're interested. Um, and the first hymn we're going to look at, it, I don't know if you remember, I, I uh, teased this out last week, uh, that quote Pastor Brown made in the sermon about, for that Boyce uh, said, that grace is not to get us around trials, it's to get us through trials. And I said we'd be looking at the hymn that he sung, that he wrote, and that he sang during his uh, ordeal with cancer, the one that was sang at his um, funeral and also at his bedside as he was dying. That's Come to the Waters. It should be the front one on your um, handout. You see, this hymn uh, explores the theme of uh, the water of life throughout scripture, which we find in several places. Revelation twenty two seventeen. whoever is thirsty, let him come. But also John 4, Jesus at the well with the Samaritan woman. Whoever, whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Some interesting things to note about the text. We see that certainly based in scripture, Christ-centered for sure. He uses parallelisms. Come to the waters, come to the blank, come to the blank. But he actually also uses progression there, where it begins with a general source of water, waters in general, and gets more specific as the hymn progresses. The next verse is uh, river, 
then a fountain, then the well, and then finally the Savior, Jesus Christ, who is himself the water of life. So it's an invitational gospel hymn, beautiful text. You can just read it. I'll, I'll play through the tune one time as you guys just read along. tune that goes perfectly with this text. Let me point out some interesting things about it. The, the tune has a natural flowing character as if there's, it's water um, in a fountain, circling in a, a fountain, cascading down a river. He, uh, Paul Jones in this tune uses sequences like we've talked about. So for instance, you look at the first line, you hear, and if you look down one line, you hear the cycles, the, the, cycles, the sequences. Um, there's a good use of dissonance in the harmony that kind of gives us a, a calmly, a, a, an unusual calm sense to the music. You hear uh, in the harmony there's tension at the end of the third line. Look at the end of the third line with words of mercy, deeply weary. That's a dissonance that, that's not natural in that key signature that he picked. And it, it puts the text at this point of a decision uh, offering, you know, come and drink deeply, and it's almost asking, will you come drink deeply? Uh, deeply? Or in the final verse, why will you suffer the law's condemnation? And then it resolves in the next line, where there's the invitation, where there's the, the response or the answer to what was proposed in the previous line. The, the rhythm stays the same throughout, but you'll notice at the beginning of the fourth line, uh, with the words of life, drink, Jesus, draw, take, Jones changes the rhythm and there's a dotted quarter, so we hold that note out longer than we would any of the other places. But that's, those are all important words in each of the five verses. Life, uh, talking about Jesus, or there's strong verbs there about drinking or, or drawing or taking the free gift. So it rightly draws emphasis to that part of the text. Okay, so we're going to learn this, and this is how we'll do it. You're, we're going to do a call and response. I'm going to sing the first line, and then you'll respond with me after that, and we'll do that four times. Four lines, so sing loudly and boldly, sin boldly. Um, and I think you guys will really enjoy this. It's an easy tune to pick up. So you just listen to me for the first line, then we'll repeat. So it goes like this. Come to the waters, whoever is thirsty. Try that. Come to the waters, whoever is thirsty. Very good. Listen. Drink from the fountain that never runs dry. Drink from the fountain that never runs dry. Jesus, the living one, offers you mercy. Jesus, the living one, offers you mercy. Life more abundant in boundless supply. Life more abundant in boundless supply. Let's try verse 2 all together. Come to the river that flows through the city. Forth from the throne of the Father and Son. 
Jesus the Savior says come and drink deeply drink from the pure inexhaustible one verse 3 Come to the well of unmerited favor stretch out your hand Jesus is such a compassionate Savior. Draw from the grace that flows freely from Him. Last verse, nice and loud. Come to the Savior, the God of salvation. God has provided an end to sin's strife. Why will you suffer the law's condemnation? Take the free gift of the water of life. Very nice. You guys like that? Beautiful, right? Okay, now flip in your uh, handout. You'll see the next one we have is How Marvelous, How Wise, How Great. This is based on Romans 8, 29 through 30. Uh, Pastor Brown mentioned in last week's evening sermon about the golden chain of salvation. That's what this is. This is the golden chain in poetic form. This idea that God has predestined us, and once he predestined us, he begins this process that culminates in our glorification, and they call it the golden chain, because once he starts this process, nothing can break it till it sees completion. So that's what, we're, that's what Boyce was after here. You see, for instance... Uh, the beginning of verse 2, we are foreknown before the world began. Verse 3 talks about our justification. He bore my sin on Calvary's tree and righteousness bestowed on me that I might see his face. God justified me, set me free, and glorified I soon will be. How marvelous this grace. Here's a very interesting thing, though, that Boyce did in terms of form to draw out the idea of the unbroken golden chain of salvation. You see on that fourth page again of the handout where I have some charts, um, I, I broke down to you the interlocking rhyme scheme that Boyce em, uh, employed in this hymn. You'll see the rhyme scheme is A-A-B, A-A-B. And what he did was that the B section becomes the A section of the next verse and so forth. So it goes A-A-B, A-A-B, B-B-C, B-B-C. So whereas the word was um, in the first verse, uh, Jehovah's saving plan rhymed with man. Then in the second verse, we have began, plan, uh, man and can. Do you, do you see how, those, uh, how the rhyming scheme there interlocks with one another? And that the hymn doesn't make any sense if you take out any of those verses. This was his way of trying to picture poetically the golden chain, that they all go together, they interlock together. So it's a, a cool thing that he did as, uh, as far as the poetry. Musically, if you want to look back at the hymn, uh, Jones sought to... Uh, replicate this idea of interlocking AAB, AAB form by using uh, cycle sequences and uh, same rhythm throughout. So you see each A pattern, how marvelous, how wise, how great, how infinite to contemplate has the same rhythm. (laughs) 
So it has the quarter, dotted quarter, eighth note, etc. And uh, so he uses that throughout the hymn so that these uh, elements are unified. Also, the highest point melodically you'll see at the very beginning of the third line is four words about uh, God's saving plan, uh, him uh, conforming us to Jesus, seeing his face, um, loving God evermore. So these are high points textually, and they become high points melodically. Uh, so let me play this through for you one time, and you'll hear it's a, it's a joyful tune uh, that is befitting of the text. Let's try singing this one one time through, maybe. Uh, repeat after me again. We'll do uh, the same pattern that we did before. How marvelous, how wise, how great. Try that. How marvelous, how wise, how great. How infinite to contemplate. How infinite to contemplate. Jehovah's saving plan. Try that. Jehovah's saving plan. He saw me in my lost estate, yet purpose to regenerate. Let's try that all together. He saw me in my lost estate, yet purpose to regenerate. This faithless fallen man. Try that. This faithless fallen man. Very good. Let's start on verse 3 all together. He bore my sin on Calvary's tree and righteousness bestowed on me that I might see his face. God justified me, set me free, and glorified I soon will be. How marvelous this grace. Last verse. What have I now but to embrace the God who saved me from disgrace and love him evermore and with contentment run my race, my eyes fixed ever on his face to praise him and adore. Very nice. You guys picked that up very well. So you see the, the final verse was our response to this idea of God's saving plan. Uh, we have three minutes left. Let's just look at the last one in your selection there. Alive in Christ. This is Boyce's setting of Ephesians 2, the first ten verses. And on the back of your handout, I put them right side by side, five verses, and their corresponding biblical verses. So we're talking about how, we're talking about how uh, they need to be grounded in Scripture. And it's so clear how Boyce did this throughout this hymn. He did put it in the first person to make it more devotional and personal. But, for instance, um, look at the second verse. So here's Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which, which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That turns into, but God, who is rich in compassion and love, not leaving my soul to the grave, has given me life, born again from above, by God's sovereign grace I've been saved. Boyce is quoted as saying that if you understand these two words, but God, they will save your soul. He said they were the most important words in all of scripture, and he set them beautifully to poetry here 
in this setting of Ephesians 2. I'll play it for you, but I don't know if we'll have time to sing. You feel free to sing along if you want, but you can just get a sense for it and then be able to study it at home. So this is Alive in Christ, Ephesians 2. Corrupted by sin Pursuing the devil's dark path Oblivious dead To the state I was in An object of God's dreadful wrath That's a bad way to end Sunday school. So let's sing together the second verse. But God who is rich... But God, who is rich in compassion and love, not leaving my soul to the grave, has given me life born again from above. By God's sovereign grace, I've been saved. You guys like it? Beautiful, right? Maybe uh, Pastor Brown gets to Ephesians 2. We might sing that in the evening service. Who knows? Uh, how about I close this in prayer? Father God, thank you so much uh, for your grace to us in Christ. That even though we were rebellious, corrupted by sin, Lord, you were rich in your compassion and love. And you have raised us with Christ. You have given us life. We thank you for that. And Lord, we, I recognize our only response is to worship you in all our lives, to sing your praise. And we ask that you would help us to do that in ways that are pleasing to you. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thanks a lot. Next week, we'll look at a few more hymns and um, a few new ones and maybe another old one. So come back. Maybe even one written by this guy up here. So. Street. A lot of people think it's on 10th Street. Street. Yeah. Very good. Thank you, sir.